from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report. I'm Clinton Griffiths in for Tyne Morgan, and here's what we're working on for you. Another week, another USDA report as markets react to falling production expectations for corn. In Tractor Tales, take a ride on a Minneapolis Moline ZTU from Oklahoma. From heat to flooding to drought, weather continues to make headlines. I'm Michelle Rook here in Nebraska where farmers and ranchers are facing back-to-back -back drought years. And in John's world, ad hoc payments, they're what's happening. And it's a police chase caught on camera. All that and more today on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when experience meets expertise. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Hello and welcome. I'm Clinton Griffiths coming to you from our studios here in northern Indiana. Time is on vacation. Now, let's get to the news that moved the markets this week. Dry weather forcing USDA to make major revisions when it comes to projected yields for the corn crop. The agency releasing new numbers in its monthly supply-demand report, now calling for 177.5 bushels an acre for corn. That's a four-bushel drop from last month after a dry June in many key growing areas. As for soybeans, the agency staying the course at 52 bushels to the acre. Wheat yields are now forecast to be 46.1 bushels an acre, up more than a bushel over last month. For ending stocks, old crop comes in at 1.4 billion, new crop 2.26, old crop soybeans at 255 million bushels, while new crop beans are down 50 million from last month to 300 million bushels. As for wheat, 580 million bushels for old crop, 592 million for new. Those acres transfer over to the balance sheet, uh, yield comes down a little bit. They actually increased demand a little bit. Uh, they reduced export and they reduced um, corn for ethanol, but they raised the feed residual, and that's kind of a head scratcher. Uh, it must be more on the residual side of things, which I tend to think means they overestimated last year's crop. Michelle Rook will take a deeper dive into those numbers coming up in our roundtable discussion. Ahead of the report, we also got some updated news about inflation. The latest consumer price index, now at its lowest point since early 2021. Rising 0.2% last month, now up 3% in June compared with a year earlier. It's thanks in part to lower prices for gas, airfare, used cars, and groceries. Speaking of interest rates, a new report from the Kansas City Federal Reserve shows farm lending is slowing down as rates rise. The volume of new non-real estate farm loans at commercial banks was roughly 15% less than a year ago. Meanwhile, the median interest rate has doubled since the beginning of 2021. Half of all new operating loans in the second quarter saw rates above 8.5%. A tenth of loans were near 10%. Is the red-hot farm real estate market finally starting to cool? Well, Farmers National has just released its mid-year land values report. It says the market entered a period of de-escalation starting in the fourth quarter of last year. It reports the trend continues with fewer properties being offered for sale and market values that are dramatically off the pace that was seen in the first half of last year as interest rates rose and inflation kicked in. 
Farmers National says the growth in price paid per acre is still positive across the Midwest, which you can see on this chart there in light green. But those increases are now in the single digits instead of the double digits seen in 2021 and 2022. Also making headlines, a week of wild weather. New England hit hard by heavy rains. Vermont seeing two months worth of rain in a matter of days. The state secretary of ag saying because of all the damage to roads, trucks are having a hard time getting to farms to pick up milk. And floodwaters also inundated fields, all of Vermont under a state of emergency. Vermont's governor calling the storm system that caused all of this historic and catastrophic. From one weather extreme to another, from the central U.S. to the southwest, temperatures in the triple digits there. Phoenix experiencing several days in a row over 110 degrees. People in the city are being urged to stay inside. While in Idaho, the problem is an outbreak of Mormon crickets and grasshoppers. Here's what it looked like in Nevada a couple weeks ago. While the insects are native to southern Idaho, officials with the Idaho State Department of Agriculture says the pressure is higher than normal. Crickets can eat up rangeland, damage plant growth and seed production. The agency says it has received more than 180 requests for assistance, a 62% increase over last year. And we're keeping an eye on this as Bayer considering spinning off its crop science division. That report is currently circulating online. The report first showing up in the Plateau Brief, a German business news agency. It says the new Bayer CEO, Bill Anderson, is already working on plans to spin off the agrochemicals business by modeling it after Siemens Energy and taking it public. Now, it reports selling the crop science division to a strategic or financial investor is not an option, and it says it could take at least three to four months before a plan is finalized. The world's largest meat packer is hoping to list its shares on the New York Stock Exchange. JBS says it wants to do it in order to better reflect the company's global presence and unlock value for shareholders. Now, shareholders still need to decide whether to accept the idea. The company's CEO believes that by the end of the year, all steps will be completed so the company can start trading shares in New York. Weather has been a major storyline this season. We'll check on what's ahead coming up next. And later, our team of market experts break down the latest USDA report and what it means for prices when the U.S. Farm Report continues. From heat waves to heavy rain and flooding, it's been a weather week for the record books. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht joins us. And Matt, the question everyone is asking, does drought or rain look more likely in the weeks ahead? Yeah, so look at the root zone maps. So we've talked about this before. Just to kind of reiterate, what we're looking at is that top layer uh, of soil, how much moisture is in there. So a little bit more accurate than what we get with the drought monitor. Uh, but it tells the same story, that we're getting pockets of very dry soil or you know, pockets of uh, very dry locations. And then on the other side, it's the other end of the spectrum. There's really not much that in between regarding the, the root zone or just the drought in general and that we're getting a lot 
of rainfall across uh, similar locations and a lot of dry air uh, over uh, very large locations. And that's the pattern we've been under the last couple of weeks and the last couple of months. Ridge of high pressure building over the Midwest and, and basically our train tracks with the moisture has been over the same place, North Carolina, the southeast to back up into Oklahoma, the panhandle uh, into Colorado and back up uh, to the north and to the west. Now on the extreme side of things, you look up at the northwest where it is dry and it is hot. The jet stream is going to support that same pattern and that's what we are seeing. This is on Sunday and into Monday. You got a, a bit of a trough trying to dig down, but it's going to be very shallow up here to the north. We're going to lay those tracks. If energy, any energy comes through, rain is going to come down over the similar locations that we just looked at in the root zone map and staying very hot record setting heat Sunday, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday of next week through the four corners and back up here uh, to the northwest. You can see why this ridge, these lines scooting up here to the north. Uh, that is a big indication of just a dome. I'm sure you've heard that before, a dome of heat uh, building and back off to the west. So any energy has to go up and over, can't go through. That's why we get the showers diving back down here to the southeast. Now for the jet stream into our Monday and Tuesday, uh, that ridge isn't going to sit there. That dome isn't going to sit there. We're going to actually moderate it. It's going to expand. Band, and as it does, it's going to amplify this next trough. So this digging on Monday and Tuesday is going to open up the door for some rain chances between this ridge and this trough. So right in between is where we have possible activity, both thunderstorms, but also uh, garden variety showers into uh, parts of Illinois, Wisconsin, and even into uh, Minnesota Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday as we look at, again, uh, that forecast going forward. I mentioned the word shallow because that's what it is. It's a shallow trough, so not digging all down to the south, which means this ridge is going to continue to build and uh, actually go zonal with the jet stream from the west to the east. If you want a signal that we're going to be talking about heat next Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, this is the the signal. Precipitation outlook July 20th through the 26th, a lot like what we just talked about with more of the rain uh, back deep into the southeast and then trying to get back up uh, into the north. All right, thanks, Matt. Now we had another big USDA report this week. So what does it tell us about market direction? Michelle Rook joins us to discuss it next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Arlen Suderman and Dwayne Bussey joining us this weekend. And let's start off talking about the WASDE report. Probably the shocker there was the 300 million bushel ending stocks figure on soybeans. And Arlen, what do you think? There's a lot of questions about how USDA put their demand projections together. Are they realistic? Oh, I, I'd say no, um, but it kind of offsets each other. Their export target is is not realistic. It's too high. But their crush number is not realistic either. And I think that's something USDA, like EPA, keeps underestimating. When you look at the growth that we're seeing in renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fields, and the number of crush facilities that are coming online, uh, investors have uh, a reason to prove those facilities and to keep them going. And so they're going to want the soybeans. Exports, on the other hand, China has been taking in two to three million metric tons per month above their crush needs. It's really since May, and we expect that to go a few months longer yet. So by the time we get to exporting, they'll have an extra, oh, about 12 million metric tons or so built up that they don't need to buy from us if they don't like the prices or they don't want to do business with us or whatever their motivation may be. 
And if you look at new crop export sales, they are just a fraction of what they normally would be this time of year. And so I think USD's export numbers is, is too high, offset by a too low crush number. And in the end, if you look at that ending stocks number that sent the computer sell orders running in the seconds following the report's release, just reduce the yield by one bushel and suddenly you have the trade's expectations. So I think the trade realized uh, as we got later in the week that um, this really wasn't as bearish a report as what we first thought. No, we don't have a lot of wiggle room here. So Duane, let's talk about yield. They left it at 52 bushels per acre, but do you see that going down from here? Uh, I see it going either direction. And isn't that a typical broker response? I'm sorry. I know we were dry in June, no doubt about that. But, you know, rains in August is really what makes the uh, soybean crop. If we get rains in August and you factor in the fact that we have less soybean acres in a, in a lower yielding state like North Dakota and more acres in more higher producing states, you know, that, that yield actually could go up, you know, and I think Arlen would agree to you know, a bushel either direction is possible from here. And speaking of yield, we did get a four bushel per acre yield cut on corn. Arlen, do we see further cuts going forward? Uh, here again, it could go yet either direction. Uh, I like the 177 area. That's what I submitted. I, I think that's real good right now. I've locked, worked, walked a lot of corn fields in my years prior to being in my current role. Um, and really, we probably did damage to the corn crop as far as limiting the girth size of the ears going forward. But we can make that up with favorable conditions if we have less tip back. And if we have a long grain fill period of time, we can get long kernels and we can make some of that up. How much can we do? If you look at the range of possibilities, it's probably everywhere from the upper 160s to the low 180s right now. I like the 177. I think that's a good number right now. And then we see where we go from this point with the weather. And Duane, what do you think in terms of how much yield loss we have to have in order to get this ending stocks figure for corn under the 2 billion bushel mark? <laughs> That's kind of a sad question, but a good question. We probably have to yield around 170, 169 if we're using my numbers. Now, my numbers are a little bit different than USA's current number because USA has uh, new crop export demand for corn up 450 million year over year. And Michelle, I, I just don't see that happening. Not at these prices anyway. You know, our current forecasts are, are slow. We're slow behind the pace. So if I'm going to increase or decrease export demand by, say, 400, 300 million bushels, well, then I need that yield to drop severely to get below 2.0 billion. So it's, it's almost just really hard for me to pull, uh, paint a bullish picture for that corn market. Yeah. Dwayne, uh, we did get a slight increase in production and ending stocks on wheat in the WASD report, but spring wheat is still kind of the wild card here. Could we see yield go down? You're up in the Dakotas where it's been hot and dry. Yeah, it has been hot and dry. And it was hot and dry at the wrong time of year for a cool season crop like uh, spring wheat. So no, that yield will probably continue to go down a little bit more. Maybe not enough to be a big market driver though. When we come back on U.S. Farm Report, we'll talk about what the WASD numbers mean for price projections going forward and whether we have a blow-off top in that cattle market. That's coming up. Registration is open for the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour, August 21st through the 24th. Attend one of our nightly meetings or join online as we gain insight on the 2023 growing season. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you.
Congress is back in session and a new farm bill is top of mind for ag leaders in Washington. But does anyone care these days? John Phipps asks the question in John's World. Back in the good old days, farmers had a reliable topic of dispute to ease the boredom during a humdrum production year. Well, this year's hardly that, but in my opinion, cultural arguments and political infighting have all but drowned out voices and opinions about one traditional debate. I speak, of course, about the 2023 Farm Bill. It's not just conversational competition from those trendier topics, but an unspoken realization maybe that the Farm Bill just doesn't pack the wallop on our economics like it used to. To be sure, there are specific segments of ag that do have much at stake in the legislative outcome, but here in corn and soy country, there are more than a few yawns. Jonathan Coppice, an ag economist with Farm Dog Daily, illustrates why farm bills don't pack the drama for producers they used to. The answer is ad hoc payments. That's Latin for helicopter money, or money that falls from the sky. It's the yellow line. Its most recent version was a market facilitation program initiated by the Trump administration. The beauty of ad hoc subsidies is they avoid all that messy process of legislation and squabbling over dollars, not to mention pretending to pay attention to a budget. Using the Commodity Credit Corporation, the Ag Department simply sells some bonds to make payouts to farmers. This swift process has overshadowed traditional farm program negotiations that can drag on for years. As drought toys with much of the Midwest, the expectation grows for another helicopter drop this year. On the other hand, if recent precipitation relief continues, whopping surpluses could drive uh, prices to the point of severe unprofitability for this most expensive crop ever planted. The feverish farm bill quarreling among politicians, but especially those facing tough races next year, will fade to whispered urgings for the administration branch to fire up the money-making, money rain-making machine. This shift in how farmers get money, not just from taxpayers, but from investors, has altered our perception of government support. It may not be worth wading through the minutia of long-winded farm bills. Clearly, helicopter money is where it's at. For us in the media, this deletes a lot of possible content. But if the drought or other production problems intensify, the rumors of ad hoc windfalls will certainly provide ample ag social media fodder. All right, thanks, John. Well, Machinery Pete joins us with Tractor Tales and a Minneapolis Moline next. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. If you're a mini mo fan, this week's for you. We're going to Oklahoma to check out a 1937 ZTU. Bought it at an antique store. <laughs> so where I got it at. So it was sitting out front for showroom display to bring people into the store. And the guy asked me how I liked his display outside, and I told him I liked it. I would like really like the Moline, and he just said it was for sale and it went from there, it come home with me. I went back home, got a trailer, come back and bought it. As you see, it's the way I bought it. I didn't do anything to this tractor. It was restored almost, I think they told me almost 40 years ago. It's still in good shape, it, it runs good. Starts right up, lights work, everything works on it. 
nice parade tractor plow with it. I plowed day and I plowed with it last year. I have a molding two bottom plow for it and we plowed with it last year. Learned to drive on my grandpa's beef farm all raking hay and just have always liked them and enjoyed them. They're easy to work on. They don't eat. So <laughs> they're, they're, I just enjoy them. They're, they're just soothing to work on, calming down. I could sit on this thing all day long now and sit in here and plow this and never crawl off of it. It just calms your mind and just listen to everything. It's just peaceful, so. So to come, the drought has eased a bit in Nebraska, but has it been enough to save the crops? We'll take a closer look next in our Farm Journal report. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Improvements in drought conditions have led to better news about crops in recent weeks. But the latest drought monitor shows drought continues to grip a huge part of the Midwest. 64% of corn and 57% of the soybean crop is in D1 to D4 drought, just a slight improvement from a week ago. And that same trend is true in Nebraska, where Michelle Rook reports some farmers say the ongoing drought is shaping up to be worse than the one they faced a decade ago. There ain't much for moisture there. This is the second drought Ryan Ebrine has seen in his farming career. The first was in 2012, but he says this year has been tougher with the lack of subsoil moisture this spring. This was worse than that year. I mean, when we were planting this year, we struggled just to find moisture. Bart Ruth farms in central Nebraska, the epicenter of the drought. This year um, is by far the driest in my career. Um, just no moisture over winter and no moisture this spring. In fact, many Nebraskans are facing year number two of drought. In central Nebraska, most of that part of the state is under severe drought. And the further east you go, basically we're seeing almost all of the eastern one-third of Nebraska in extreme to exceptional drought. And that has slowly been increasing in spatial coverage over the last uh, couple months. And the onset came earlier than last year or 2012. So irrigation pivots have been running for several weeks. We started mid-May and we're, I think we're on pass number six on corn already. So, you know, we're expecting twice as much water to be applied during the growing season this year as in the average year. While some recent rains in parts of Nebraska have improved overall crop conditions in the state, farmers tell me they've already lost top and yield potential on those irrigated acres. And as far as dry land crops, the rains came too late, at least for corn. You get a hot 90 degree day in the afternoon, you look at that corn, it's all pineappled up, looking, you know, not good at all. Um, so I'm, the top end yield is for sure gone there and I say at least 25 percent, 30 percent, somewhere in there. There's plants out there four inches tall and first of July and so they won't amount to anything. So 
you know, we'll have some z acres that are zeroed out. Once a crop's dead, it's not going to be revived no matter how much water you put on it. And the latest drought monitor shows 86% of corn and 93% of beans in Nebraska are in D1 to D4 level drought. So production potential has been compromised. Even with, with uh, regular rainfall, dryland crops are going to have a, have a tough go of it. They started off with uh, very little to no moisture in the soil profile this growing season. And that means there's, there's not a lot of moisture to tap into for those crops as the season progresses. The exceptional dryness has also hurt this year's forage crops and pasture conditions. I was hoping for a bale per acre and it's half of that. We're getting up. We normally get three and a half, four bale per acre on a good year. So our, uh, our grass, you know, our hay crops just, you know, next to nothing right now. So we're kind of in a, going to be in a bind here for, for feed. And so he's been forced to cull even more cattle from his herd. We cut back from 100 cows down to below 80, and uh, I've gotten rid of another 10 now, and now we got to go back through and look again. And any cow that looks cross-eyed at you that's not real good probably needs to go. And Nebraska isn't alone. Nearly 64% of the Midwest is also in D1 to D4 level drought, up slightly from the previous week. So the recent rains in those areas have not been drought busting. I don't think that the rain in some of those areas was greater than usual. And so the bottom line is that we are still looking at an environment here uh, that is not real conducive for serious relief to the drought. In fact, 64% of the U.S. corn crop is in drought and 57% of the soybeans. Lerner says there's already been yield loss and the forecast for the balance of the growing season may not reverse the damage. We'll have some timely rain, but not necessarily normal rain until rather late in the season, which suggests that we may have a problem with getting the largest kernel sizes on these ears. And we may still have a risk of not completely filling some of the ears in the drier biased areas. So while USDA lowered national corn yield by four bushels per acre in the July report, there may be further cuts ahead. I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. So where does livestock stand with all of the uncertainty about drought and grains? We'll discuss it with our marketing panel, Michelle Rook, Arlen Suderman, and Dwayne Bossy. next. And later, John Phipps rocks the mailbag with a question about AC or DC. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Dwayne Bussey and Arlen Suderman joining us this weekend. We started off initially talking a little bit about the WASD report earlier this week. And let's talk about what it means for price action. Um, Arlen, let's talk about uh, soybeans and the ratio between corn and soybeans. Where do we need to be right now? Because we have a lot different dynamics in terms of ending stocks between corn and soybeans at this point. Yeah, first of all, let's get out of our mind that the old crop ratio really matters that much other than a psychological factor. It really comes down to the new crop ratio as far as determining next year's acreage. And typically we're gonna run 2.35 up to maybe 2.5 or so for that new crop soybean corn price ratio. But we've taken it as over three several times in the last 15 or 20 years. So it can happen. We can get up to 3.1, 3.2 or so. It's rare, it doesn't happen often, but it can happen. The bottom line is right now, if soybeans is what is going to be driving it. And so you say, will that hold up corn? Uh, probably will not hold up 
corn to the extent that farmers would like, but it does have a psychological impact. And I'll give an example. When the report came out on Wednesday, the corn numbers are really no surprise, but we sold off hard. That's because the support from wheat and soybean prices had broken. And so therefore corn was allowed to fall. Corn, soybeans and wheat had been helping prop up corn prior to that point. So it does have an effect on it. You need to have strong soybeans to hold up corn at this point. Yeah. And we just simply don't have the fundamentals to do it otherwise yet. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be a bit of a tug of war there. So Dwayne, let's talk about soybeans because $14 November beans, that seems to be kind of uh, capping the rally here because of what we're seeing in terms of the ending stocks for you, do you think that we're going to need some sort of a weather problem to get back above that level? Yeah, I, I think it would take some sort of drought scare, some heat ridge in August, and, and then threaten the yield, right? Then we could get above $14. Uh, before that, I, I don't see a reason why we have to do that yet. Like the new crop ending stocks are tight. I mean, 300 million bushels, even if we believe it or not, is, is fairly tight. So we're justified being in this range here, but honestly, above 1350, I'm okay to be a, a hedger of new crop beans. And because of that tightness, we don't really have to drop below 12 bucks anytime soon either. And as far as the corn market, if you're above 2 billion bushels, is $5 a justifiable level for corn? Uh, sorry, producer friends out there, but no, I really don't think so. Like I said, because of what I'm forecasting, a much lower uh, export demand number for corn. I'm looking at corn prices going lower to, to maybe even sharply lower from here. But to Arlen's point, you know, maybe soybeans can help them out for a little bit until we get to fall. But corn in a bubble by itself could trade down 425 on the future side. Yeah. So the other thing that was friendly for commodities this week was uh, the CPI levels. And Arlen, do you think that right now this will cause the Fed maybe to back off and talk about what that meant for the dollar falling below par here and what that means for commodities. Well, their perception is reality. And right now the market is perceiving that this gives the Fed the permission to, to pivot its policy. It's got about a 92% odds in Fed futures trading that we're going to see um, one more rate hike as we get toward the end of this month from the Federal Reserve. And then that's it. And we start cutting rates in the first quarter next year. That's the market's perception. Keep in mind that the market's been wrong for the last year and a half or more. And I think it's going to continue to be wrong. And the reason is because we have that 2% mandate that the Fed is committed to. And while we're seeing many of the factors of inflation go away, one of the key factors that it's not, and there's really two that are not, that shelter that made up 70% of this past week's CPI number that we saw. And then there's wage inflation, which shows up in the service sector. Now, we anticipate that shelter is going to go lower. There's certainly indications that it's going to go lower, but we are starting to see that housing market heat up again, and we have a shortage of housing in the United States. And as the consumers get, become comfortable with higher interest rates and consumer sentiment has started to work higher as a re result of reports like this, they're starting to go back in the housing market and they have to pay up for those houses. But wage inflation is the big problem right now. Okay. We've not been able to balance supply and demand there. And I think the Fed's gonna have to inflict more pain on the economy in order to get down to the 2% level. Yeah, and the reason we talk about it is it does impact money flow. Um, and, you know, cattle are sensitive to that as well. And we did have kind of a big key reversal in live cattle futures on Wednesday. Dwayne, what do you think? Um, did we put in a blow off top there or is this just, 
you know, one of those things that when you're in a supply tight market, doesn't matter technically. Well, we are sure in a tight market there, aren't we? No, but it's it's been an odd week, right? We, we ran up and made new highs when I felt like we didn't have to, according to the fundamentals. Box beef going lower, cash markets trending lower, dog days of summer. You'd think we just grind lower on the futures market, but yeah, we did this big spike up and then a hard reversal. It does look like a blow off top right now, but uh, stay tuned. We've said that a couple times this spring already. Arlen, is this situation different than what we saw in the 14-15 cycle? Does it have a longer tail? I, I think it does have a longer tail. And let's keep in mind yet that we have not yet really started to hold back heifers. We're still slaughtering 65,000 to 70,000 head of cows per week. So we really haven't uh, kept back on the cow slaughter either. And once that happens, we're going to tighten up those beef supplies even more. And the market's really not taking that account. And that has implications for feed market. Dwayne was talking about exports. I'm really concerned about USDA's feed usage number for corn being too high for this coming year as well. All right. Thanks for joining us this weekend, Arlen Suderman and Dwayne Bussey. And we'll have more U.S. Farm Report coming up. In the early 1900s, farmers were switching from horses to tractors. Plowmaker Deer & Company also entered the fray after buying the Waterloo Gasoline Engine Company in 1918. By 1936, 40% of deer sales came from tractors. Machinery Peak is back with a Waterloo boy that's still turning heads and a museum that helps hold the memories. Hey folks, Machinery Pete here on the road in Monroe, Wisconsin. I tell you what, this is a special treat. We are at the uh, family collection, uh, Carousel Farms, and I'm here with Randy Bader. And Randy, first of all, thank you for giving us the opportunity to get up close to your amazing collection of John Deere and and other types of equipment, it is, it is kind of mind-blowing to stand here and look at your collection. And of course, we're standing by a piece of John Deere history. Can you tell us about this Waterloo boy? Uh, th this is a 1914 uh, Model R. Okay. And uh, th they're fairly rare. Uh, there wasn't a lot of R's built. I, I guess it would be easy to find out, but it's a matter how many are left. But this is a Kenny Cass tractor out of Dunkerton, Iowa. And we were introduced to this tractor down at the uh, new pavilion, uh, the first year that they had it. As we look around your collection here, uh, Randy, and by the way, folks, if you, if you want more in-depth, we have a whole walkthrough Machine Repeat YouTube video with Randy and his brothers talking about the collection. But the Waterloo Boy is a centerpiece, but just amazing history all around here, Randy. Can you tell us a little bit how it all got started for you guys? Oh, probably started when we were boys, okay. uh, probably riding with our grandfather Bader on his John Deere tractors. Your, your late father, Ron, legend in the agricultural industry uh, with the agency side, uh, you know, helped make American agriculture what it was. Uh, must have been a lot of fun with dad over the years. Oh, it was tremendous. We, we had the most wonderful time with our father. and. He loved machinery too. He had a passion for all agriculture and, and he was good at anything he did. And uh, when he decided and asked us guys if we wanted to start collecting two-cylinder John Deere tractors, of course we were delighted. Yeah. And uh, I think our first auction we all went together was uh, Kiwana, Illinois. Mm. And we found a couple old deeds that yeah. we brought back home. And, that was the beginning. Yeah. Isn't it funny that the, the, the tractors that you acquire 
at the auctions, or even those auctions where you go and you get skunk, you don't get it. But you can look back on the days spent with your brothers or your dad or your wife or your friends at the sale. I mean, those are good days. Those were the best days of our lives. Yeah, we were all together looking at yeah. and judging tractors. With this collection, you, you're, you're connecting our past as we smash forward full speed into the future. And like you say, the modern equipment in the shed, you guys farm, you, you know, doing what you gotta do, but you know, honoring our past like this is a beautiful thing to do. So Randy, thank you for what you guys have done, you and your brothers and your family. And thank you for showing us, uh, again, just a treat to be able to get up close to it. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, you bet. All right, thanks, Greg. Up next, John Phipps opens the Farm Report mailbag. AC versus DC, part one. From solar to wind, renewable energy continues to develop. But what about the technology to transport that electricity? John Phipps has more in customer support. Got a great question from loyal viewer Brad Johnson in North Dakota. More transmission lines will forever be problematic. I need to learn more about AC versus DC long distance transmission issues. I do remember the huge battle over a DC line in Minnesota. This is one of those topics I thought I sort of understood, but answering this question uncovered much I did not know. First, we need some basics of electricity transmission. We need one equation. Power measured in watts, or kilovolt amperes, KVA, equals volts times amps. A useful analogy in liquids is our, our liquids in pipes, where voltage is like pressure and amperage is like the flow rate, the gallons per minute. To transmit more power requires higher voltage or higher amperage or both. Only the higher the amperage, the bigger the conductor or wire needed. In other words, higher voltage means you can use smaller and cheaper lines for the same power flow. The big advantage for alternating current AC transmission is voltage can be stepped up or stepped down, raised or lowered using transformers. However, transformers don't work with direct current, DC. AC is also the form of electricity that we normally use for everything from motors to electronics. An overview of how we get power from generators to customers looks like this. The growing problem with our national system or grid is right in the center. Compared to high voltage DC, HVDC transmission lines, AC systems have greater losses, primarily due to heat, but also from some technical problems I can't get into. Transmitting power long distances becomes more expensive and difficult with AC, as we seek to move more electricity to consumers as our power sources shift from fossil fuels to renewables, especially wind and solar. HVDC can ease many of these problems, but has its own costs and challenges. I'll talk about how HVDC transmission lines are helping to smooth the transition to renewables next week. Up next, a goat chase you have to see to believe. From the Farm is next. Registration is open for the 2023 Pro Farmer Crop Tour, August 21st through the 24th. Attend one of our nightly meetings or join online as we gain insight on the 2023 growing season. Visit profarmercroptour.com forward slash register to select the stop nearest you. 
handling critters on the farm isn't always as easy as it looks. Take a look at this animal control call. Officers in Glendale, Arizona struggling to get their hands on a pair of loose goats. The officers chasing them down in those scorching hot temperatures. Now the goats were eventually captured and returned to their owner. The iconic red tomato may be getting some competition. FDA greenlighting sales of a new purple-hued tomato variety. Norfolk Plant Sciences says it's officially completed a consultation with the FDA regarding its high antioxidant genetically engineered purple tomato. Now, the purple color comes from two genes sourced from the edible snapdragon flower and naturally stimulates the tomato's ability to produce purple pigments. The company plans to sell a range of purple tomato products, including seeds for home gardeners. And Chipotle is testing a robot to help make guacamole at its restaurants. It's called the Atacado. One by one, it slices the fruit open, takes off the skin, removes the core, and places the good stuff in a bowl. The employees then add other ingredients and hand mash it to make guac. And how much do you love cheeseburgers? Well, Burger King in Thailand is taking the cheeseburger to a whole new level. You're looking at a burger with no meat, but instead up to 20 slices of American cheese between two buns. Now it costs about 11 US dollars. Apparently in Thailand, cheese is especially popular among young people, and it's common for it to be added to all kinds of dishes. And that's all of our time. From all of us at US Farm Report, I'm Clinton Griffiths. Tyne Morgan will be back next week as we work to build on our tradition. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.